you guys join me have a seat. Good morning. Uh, if you were here last week, you know our clock was broken. Still there. Still don't want to jip you of what you deserve. So, we're going to, uh, I think I'm ringing up here. Can we pull my mic back a little bit? I think I'm ringing a little bit. Am I ringing in you guys? Yeah, yeah, no, someone said yes, someone said no. I don't know who to believe. All right. Well, hey, um, the, uh, the next six weeks, we're actually going to take a break from the book of Mark. Uh, let me give you just a few, uh, a, a few pictures of what, what we're going to do for the next six weeks. So, first off, if you're visiting this morning, normally our pattern is we work our way through a book of the Bible, and uh, occasionally throughout that time, we'll take breaks. And so, uh, whether that's because it's a particular season, like Christmas or Easter, or whether that's because um, there's certain topics that we want to address, or something happened, and so... One of our patterns is we, we work our way through a book. Now, our book that we've been working our way through has been Mark. We're going to take the next six weeks off from Mark for a couple of reasons. For, uh, for this week and next week, I'll tell you what we're doing here in just a moment. But I wanted to preview something for you because I want to make sure you mark this down in September. The month of September, starting Labor Day weekend, if you're planning on being around, we're going to kick off a four-week series where we're going to go back and look at what are our core values as a church, what's most important to us, uh, so if you're visiting our church or you've been visiting and you want to know a little bit more, see a little bit deeper underneath the hood about how Houston picks and, and, and what drives us, that's going to be that series. Now, here's the even better part about that. It's going to be a team preaching series. So I'm going to preach bookends. I'm going to do the beginning and the end, but in the middle, we have Russ and Jeff preach. So we're all going to split this so you get a chance to hear from them as well about uh, what what's important to them about these core values. And, you know, it's always because I can I can say things certain ways and, and I can communicate things certain ways, but then each person, God gifts and unique, um, uniquely skills, each person will be able to communicate differently and get new aspects and different angles. So I want you to hear from them. Uh, they certainly have uh, very much to bring to the table. So if you are planning to be here in September, that's, that's something you want to write down and, and be here for that. No pressure, though. All right, so here's what we're going to do today and um, next week. I want to take two weeks and uh, talk about the topic of giving. Everybody give a collective groan. Okay, I mean, isn't that? Okay, all right. What did I, what did I, what did I hear back there? Yay. <laughs> here's, here's what I want to do. Um, and by the way, page 501, if you need a Bible, and there should be some Bibles on the chairs in front of you if you need one, page 501 is where you're going. Uh, book of First Chronicles is where we'll be. Here, here's what I want to do for the next two weeks. Um, one of my goals is every year there's certain topics I want to try and make sure we preach on from the pulpit. Um, because sometimes those topics may or may not be coming up in the books that, that we're going to uh, look at. But they're important topics. And I want to make sure that they're covered from the pulpit. And so uh, some of those topics are giving, parenting, marriage, um, looking for little ears, um, adult marital, intimate relationships, okay, um, and, and things like that. Um, those are topics I want to try to hit throughout the year, and sometimes those don't naturally come up in the books that we're, um, that we're looking at. So giving is one of those topics. The reason I want to talk about giving, okay, because I know as soon as I say that, some of you may have walls go up, because you've never been in a church where the preacher didn't talk about giving. And maybe your experience was, uh, that when the preacher got up and talked about giving, somewhere along the line you felt guilted, somewhere along the line you were shamed, and then 
something along these lines was said to you. If you want God to bless you, you need to bless Him. If, if you want to, to see your wealth increase, you need to increase your giving. Or something, something along those lines, and it was always specifically geared toward you need to give to that particular organization, that particular preacher or minister's cause or whatever the case may be. And maybe that just rubbed you wrong. Maybe you had a friend who, uh, they, they uh, you know, stayed up late night watching the television and, and someone was selling uh, that sand from the beach in Jerusalem on the Dead Sea. And if you can get yourself a bottle of that sand, your life is going to be enriched. And just send this much money over to this organization, this address, which happens to be in California, and then we'll send you the sand from Israel. And so someone did that, but then they, they got the sand and it looked like it should be Galveston. You know, or, or the, the Lake El Reno shore. I mean, you, you can't really tell if it's sand from the shore of the, the Dead Sea, right? And so you just, you watch that and you watch people give their money away and you're like, oh, this is just abuse. So I get that. Maybe when, when a preacher says, we're not talking about money, you're skeptical. True confession from pastor. I'm skeptical when a pastor gets up and says, we're not talking about money. Okay? That's my natural inclination. I'm going to I'm going to have a natural bent of skepticism where I'm going, okay, what are you about to tell me about giving? And I'm going to sit through what you say, and then I'll decide whether I can trust you. So if that's you, I get that. You're in good company there. And others of you, um, maybe you grew up in the church, and so this is really, you're like, oh, I don't want to waste my time on this today. Wish I could have gone golfing instead. And weather's not good enough for golfing, so there you go for that. Uh, but you could come up with whatever whatever you're thinking of, because you grew up in a home where your parents gave. And, and your parents then modeled for you what it looks like to give. And so now you've developed that pattern of giving. And you understand why you give and, and, and how you're supposed to give. And so you do that. And so it's the U.S. And thank you. Great job that you did that. Others of you this morning, though, um, maybe you didn't grow up around church. Or maybe your parents didn't model that for you. And so you've always kind of gone to church. And when you get in church, giving is just kind of one of those things that you do. It's just on the list, right? You go, you show up, you sit down, you get a donut, you get some coffee, you shake a few hands, maybe say a few God bless you's, and you hand those out. And then you, you, you sit and you sing some songs, but you stand when they tell you to stand. And then you sit and then you listen to the preacher, or you fill out your, met, uh, your, your connection card like the worship pastor told you to do, because you're just following directions, right? And then after that, you just leave and you say, I feel accomplished about my Sunday. I'm glad I spoke in a good way. Somewhere along the way, a plate was flashing, passing six money. Because that's what you do, whatever I have on you, right? And so that's just how you view it. And so this message is for you this morning. Some of you didn't grow up around church uh, at all, and so you're now kind of getting into this church world, and a lot of things are new, you know, things that maybe people who grew up in church, language they use, they take for granted. You're going, oh, I'm going to have to look that one up later. I'm going to have to Google that to see what they meant when they said that, you know? It's kind of like being in the military. You know, we got our, we got all these acronyms in the military and true confessions again because that's not my my world that I'm in all the time. When I go up to the military base, they're throwing acronyms at me left and right. Some of them I'm just nodding my head going inside and I have no clue what you just said. No clue what you just said, but I get the gist and it's not that important for me to understand what you just said, but I got you. Other times I'm mentally thinking, no, I'm going to look that one up. going to look that one up, right? So that's kind of how you kind of kind of enter into this church world. And you're like, they talk certain ways, they, they talk about certain things, they do certain things, and you don't really know why. You've never seen it, you've never heard it taught, and so you just kind of go along with it, or you're kind of watching it. And so this is for you as well, because we uh, there, there's things that sometimes we just need to, to be taught and understand. This is why we do what we do. So there, there's a lot of reasons I want to I want to be able to talk about this this morning. Uh, I guess the last one will be this. You know, money is an important topic. 
I mean, you think about uh, marriages. If you've ever done any marriage counseling with me, uh, especially pre-marriage, one of the things I say at least once but several times throughout our sessions is there's three things that most people get divorced over. There's at least, at least one of them are usually involved. Three things. Money. Um, again, we got kids in here, so intimate, marital, physical relations. Okay? Or some kind of issue with the kids. And tie that all together with communication is kind of weaves through all three of them. Money is a big deal. Right? It, it has the power to divide. It has the power to deceive. It has the power to bless. Uh, all, of, all of that uh, kind of comes into play with money. Um, in fact, Jesus gives it such importance that at one point he says to people, Hey, you want to know what's important to you? You want to know where your, where your heart really is focused? Look at where your money goes. That's a pretty powerful statement. You want to know where your heart is? Look where your money goes. And so uh, money is given uh, a lot of importance by Jesus. So what I want to do today and next week is try to answer two questions. Two questions. One, why do Christians give? Why? Why do Christians give? And then next week, how do Christians give? Or how should they give? Okay, that, that's kind of the, 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 the aim for the next two weeks. Why do Christians give? And how do Christians give? Now, did you notice a key word in those two questions? Christians. Okay? I'm, I'm talking about this morning and next week people who have placed their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and the receive new life. I'm talking about followers of Christ who have been forgiven of sins. You are a Christian, not a, not a person who just goes to church. I'm talking about you have been saved. You, I don't know, if you spent some time in jail, you got religion, you know, and, and whatever, however you want to package that. I'm talking about those people. Why do they give? And so maybe you never grew up in the church. Maybe, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian. And so I want to say to you, don't, don't check out this morning because you might actually learn something about why Christians do what they do. Okay? And the last thing I'll say before I, I, we jump in is if you are not a Christian this morning, at the end of this message, there's no guilt trip. Christians, at the end of this message, there's no guilt trip. This is not going to be a, a one of those sermons where at the end I've somehow tried to manipulate you and then we pass the plates and say, see now, if you don't give, you clearly didn't listen or something is off about you. None of that's coming. I'm not going to tell you that if you want to be blessed, you got to bless, you know, and, and that if you want to, you know, uh, see your, your, your wealth increase, that somehow you got to funnel that money to the church. Or the I'm, not, I'm not going there. That, that's not coming. I just simply want to answer two questions over that series. Why are you Christians here? And how should they do it? And then let God work on all of us for that. So to do that, we're going to be in First Chronicles chapter 29. So again, if you need a Bible, it should be on the page, uh, the chairs in front of you, page 501. First Chronicles, not one of those books. It's not page 501. Okay, so then go back toward the beginning of the book a little bit, because First Chronicles becomes comes before Second Chronicles. And someone who has that Bible, tell me the page number. There you go. Thank you. 472. Now we will be all on the same page. 472. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So First Chronicles chapter 29. All right. That's not one of those books that you're going to turn to very often. You know, unless you're doing your read through the Bible over the course of the year. First and Second Chronicles, you're like, mm, there's something in there about that, and, and I don't, I don't know where it is or what it's about. First and Second Chronicles, very similar to First and Second Kings. Here's the main difference, just so you know. Main difference is this: First and Second Kings written 
as the nation of Israel was going into captivity. They were, they were being enslaved. And so, it's going to have a decidedly more negative tone to them. There's stories in First and Second Kings that you're not going to find in First and Second Chronicles. For instance, like David, who we're going to look at today, and his uh, adultery with Bathsheba. Shows up in, in First and Second Kings, and not in First and Second Chronicles. Because First and Second Kings was written as the people are going into uh, captivity. And so the writers of, of uh, First and Second Kings, probably Samuel the prophet, wants to let the people know, here's how you're getting where you're going. This is what we did. But then 70 years later or so, Israel's ready to come out. And so now you've got somebody else writing First and Second Chronicles. And they want to remind uh, the Israelites of the glory. They want to remind the Israelites, this is what God can do through us and wants to do through us. And so they, they, they don't include some of those what uh, negative things like second, uh, first and second kings would include because their focus is not so much on how we got to here, but now let's get back on the right track to, as we go forward. So there's, there's two different purposes in the way they're written. So there are some stories that overlap, but they have completely different purposes. So first and second chronicles. As we're in First Chronicles, here's what we've got going on. We're talking about King David this morning. King David. And King David, this is Israel's second king, but their greatest king. This is a man who was powerful. This is a man who was strong. This is a man, we would call him today a man's man. Because this is a man who, when he was a mere boy, he was a shepherd. Right? And, and being a shepherd may not strike us today, some of us today, as being a very masculine thing. You think shepherd, you think weak, but not so much. Because David was a shepherd, he was entrusted with his sheep. That was his livelihood, or he was taking care of those sheep for family. And so that responsibility rested on him. The responsibility to make sure the sheep got where the sheep needed to go. They got fed when they needed to get fed. They, if one of them went off, that one was so important that some of them were left so that he could go find the other one. In fact, we're told about David that when he was a shepherd, right before he goes and fights Goliath, you know, that's one of the most famous stories with David, and is David and Goliath. We're told that he, he walks into that situation and tells the king at the time, King Saul, hey, I can do this because God's going to be the one to empower me to do this. You're, and he says about himself, your servant David, he's killed a lion and he's killed a bear just watching over his sheep when those two things tried to, tried to attack my sheep. I mean, with his bare hands, this guy, his sheep, right? Animals. We're not talking about like kids and things like that. We're talking about his animals, his sheep. A lion and a bear come after him and he takes them down with his bare hands. That's a man's man. That, that's a man that when you hear that story, you're going, wow. Wow, can I just stand a little closer to you? Because maybe some of that masculinity will just come off of you. I mean, we don't, you don't hear those pastors. Then later, uh, we hear that this man was a great warrior. King David was a great warrior. Won all kinds of victories. In fact, he was also a great lover. Because there was a, a time where he wanted to marry the, the daughter of, of the current king, King Saul. And we're told that King Saul didn't like David, so he's hoping to get David killed. And so he said, all right, all right, David, you want to marry my daughter? Here's what you got to do. The enemy at that time for Israel was the Philistines, the people that lived close to the sea. He says, I want you to go. And I want to say, I'm going to mess the number up because I didn't look it up. But it's like a hundred or a thousand or something. It's some inordinate number, right? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. I want you to go and bring that many Philistine forces. Okay? Not only do you have to kill them to get that, you got to get pretty intimate with them. That's glory. David comes back and brings twice as much. Twice as much. That's the kind of man this man was. 
He held power in his hand. He had influence. He was powerful. He was God's anointed king of Israel. And so when he finally stepped into the throne, things went really well for a very small time. David was respected. David was followed. David and, and, and the Israelites won many, many victories. And so somewhere along that way, uh, David was kind of settling in. It was kind of a peaceful time. And he had finished his palace. And he was looking around and he realizes that, hey, God does not have a palace yet. Here I built me this great house, and yet God is still the place where God's presence is dwelling, that place where everybody goes to meet with God, where the, where the, the presence, the ark of the covenant, that box, you know, that, that Indiana Jones was looking for him. You know, that thing, it's in this mobile tent still. It's in the tabernacle. It's still mobile. We need to set something up for God that's more permanent, that's worthy of him. So David starts to go down that path, and he has this conversation with God where he says, God, I want to do this for you. I want to build this house. And then God, in a very uh, honest moment, says, David, David, you're not going to be the one. I I appreciate that, David, but you're not going to be the one who builds me the temple, a house. You've got too much blood on your hands. You're you're a man of violence. It's not a bad thing. He did those things for the Lord, on the Lord's direction. But God said, hey, but well, when it comes to building my house, my temple, we're going to reserve that for someone else. And so God tells David in that moment, it's actually going to be your son Solomon. Solomon's going to be the one who's going to build that for me. And so David, uh, hearing this, okay, well, I mean, at, least it's, you know, at least it's my son. But there's something David can do, right? Building some, some permanent structure, some temple that's going to be worthy of, of God requires resources, requires materials. So David says, I can provide that. And so what we see happening right before the verses we're about to read is David starts to pony up his own resources. Here's gold from my own, my own resources. Here's some precious stones and some silver. Here's wood. Here's iron. And he just sends large amounts of that to be stored so that it can be used. And then he goes to his people and he says, hey, if you feel led to give, would you give also? He doesn't demand it of them. He says, look, I've given and then he says, if you feel like you won't you give it now? And then, uh, I, I, it must have been to a surprise, because we're going to see his reaction here in a moment. He just sees the people just bringing all kinds of resources, their own gold, their own silver, their own wealth. And we're now talking about regular people, not kings. And David is just amazed at what he sees. And so with that, let's look at First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, is what we'll pick up. David's just now seeing this all unfold. And he's watching his people bring all this material. So David, verse 10, praise the Lord before the entire assembly. And this is what he said. He said, O Lord God of our Father Israel, you deserve praise forevermore. I mean, he's excited, right? I mean, you give and you wonder, is anyone else going to give? And and he believes in the cause. He thinks it's worthy. And so he's ponied up his own money. But but when I go and ask the people, are they going to see the same thing? And then he watches them be more generous than he could have imagined. And he just re- responds with praise, Oh God, you should receive praise forevermore. Look at me at verse 11. Oh Lord, you are great. You are mighty, majestic, magnificent, glorious, and sovereign over all the sky and the earth. You have dominion and you exalt yourself as ruler of all. Verse 12. You are the source of wealth and honor. You rule over all. You give strength, I'm sorry, you possess strength and might to magnify and give strength to all. Verse 13, now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise 
your majestic name. Let's stop there for a minute. Here's what's going on there. David has an assumption. And it comes through in his praise, right? David, powerful man, wealthy man. I mean, as a king, when you would go and you would conquer other people, part of what comes with that is spoil, right? You get wealth. You amass wealth. As the king, you are likely one of the most wealthiest, if not the wealthiest person among the people. You're the most powerful person among the people. You're king. You have all authority over your people, over your area. You, you are considered to be sovereign. Never, never question the king. Because off with your head. I mean, that's the kind of power you have as a king. That's who David is. And in all of that greatness, all of that power that David has, all of that wealth that David has, we find him instead saying, Praise be to you, God. You, God, are mighty. You, God, are majestic. You, God, are sovereign over and then he makes this statement. Did you, did you catch it? In, at verse, verse 12, look at me. There it is. Watch. You are the source of wealth and honor. You rule over all. You are the source of wealth and honor, is what David said. He does not give the glory to himself. He does not say, God, I amassed all of this stuff for myself. He says, God, I know this comes from you. God, the power that I have as king comes from you. God, the authority I have as king comes from you. Basically, David's saying, God, you are more powerful than me. And with that comes the right to give things. Comes the authority to, to, to delegate possessions. David realizes that. So the first thing I want you to see this morning, we're asking, why do Christians give? One, it starts with an assumption that God is more powerful than us. Because here's the thing, if, if God is not more powerful than me, if I believe that I earned all of that money, that I am the one who did all of the work, and God had nothing to do with what I have, then what am I doing? I'm putting myself at the top and I'm saying, I did this. I acquired this. It, it, all that I need to acquire all the wealth that I have and possess, that lies in me. We then elevate ourselves to a position of authority, a position of power. And David says, no, even though I have that position, more than any one of us in this room, as king, he had that position. He says, no, God is more powerful than me. All that David had, he understood came from God. All that David had, the power, the authority, the people, the victories in his battle, his wealth, which he has just now owned up to build a temple. He says, God, you're that source. That comes from you. Why do Christians give the first one? Is because God is more powerful. He is above us. He is the one who has the right, who has the resources, to be able to give to whomever he will cast you. Other place, David said this. David was a great poetry writer and, and a great songwriter. And so we have that collection of, of many of David's songs in, in the book of Psalms. And one of those psalms that, 
that was written there in Psalm 24 starts out by saying, The earth is the Lord, and everything in it, the world, and all that it contains. David understood that the powerful he may get, the amount of influence that he had, the amount of wealth and possessions that he acquired here in this life, in this earth, he had only because God chose to take them from that. Were it not for God, he would not have had them. David got that God is more powerful than us. So let's go on. Because from that flows David's next response. Look with me at verse 14. So David starts now, and as he's, as he's praising God, God, you're more powerful than I am. He asks this question, but who am I and who are my people that we should be in a position to contribute this much? Indeed, everything comes from you, and we have simply given back to you what is yours. Here's what's going on. David's asking a question, who am I and who are my people? This is not like a low self-esteem moment for David. This is, this is not a woe is me type of moment for David. David's not dwelling on how... Uh, how weak and how um, poor he is. No, instead, he's saying, God, this stuff doesn't come from us. He's, he's watching his people give generously, and he's saying, God, that, that generosity, that doesn't come from us. Who am I, who are we as people, that we should be able to give like that? We couldn't in our best day amass that kind of generosity that David was doing. He's acknowledging again, God, that's all from you. So you, you, you see it, look again at verse 14. 29 verse 14. He says this, Who am I and who are my people? He says, it's not from us. That we should be in a position to contribute this much. We're nobody. This, this kind of generosity, these kind of possession, they don't come from people like us. They only can come from people like us if someone like you, God, has provided that. Indeed, everything, he says, comes from you. And we have simply given back to you what is yours. See, we have simply given back to you what is yours. David understands the generosity that's taking place here. God, we're not giving you something that you didn't previously have. We're not giving you something, God, that's not already yours. You see, it's God owns it all. And then he loves it. And so when we give it back, we're just giving back what's already his. Right? The deception that we all buy into is that it's ours. David didn't buy into that. And of all the people, David, the king, the sovereign over all people, certainly could have gone that route. And here's the deal. When you take God out of the picture, that's where you end up. When you take God out of the picture, the most powerful people in the world that rise to the top are a lot, a lot of times those who are the wealthiest, those who have the most power, those who have the most influence. When you keep God in the picture, He's above all. And so even if you rise to the top, you could be the most powerful person in the world. You can be Donald Trump, rich, rich man. Spend, spend $1 billion on your campaign. Money going to make a difference. You can turn somebody away who says, I want to give you $500 million to support your campaign. You can tell him, I don't need it. And you take God out of the picture, all of a sudden, you're powerful in your own mind. You take God out of the picture, everyone who sees you as such, that man's got power. You keep God in the picture, 
you understand that no matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy a person gets, all that he or she has comes from God. All that he or she has is simply on loan by God. And in a moment, God could choose to pull it. He could choose to give more. He can choose to direct and guide them to use it according to his purpose. So let's go on verse 15. David says, For we are resident foreigners and nomads in your country. That's it. We, we are strangers and aliens. We are just wandering through, God. We are temporary dwellers. We don't have a permanent residence here. We don't have a home here. David says, Before you, God, we are just but temporary dwellers. We're strangers. We're visitors to this town. We have no citizenship. We have no rights. David's looking at all these possessions. And he's saying, God, we're just giving back to you the prior years because, God, he realizes we're just temporary here. The life that we live on this earth, he's watched people come and go. As a man of war, he's watched people's lives end a lot sooner than they should have. As a father, he knows the pain of losing a baby. He's watched the life end right in his time. David knows the temporary nature. He knows that he too, he's just passing through. No matter how powerful he gets, no matter how wealthy he gets, he says to God, I'm just a foreigner among you. I have no rights. And so for his people and him to be able to give so generously as someone who has no citizenship, who has no rights in the place where they live, he realizes someone had to give that to us. Someone had to give us these things so that we can then get them. David says, we're just temporary. Life is fleeting. He knows that. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this wealth which we have collected to build a temple for you to honor your holy name comes from you. It all belongs to you. Verse 17, I know, my God, that you examine thoughts and things with integrity, with pure motives. I contribute all this. And now I look with joy as your people who have gathered here contribute to you. O oh Lord God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, maintain the motives of your people and keep them devoted to you. Make my son Solomon willing to obey your commands, rules, and regulations, and to complete building the path in which I have made preparation. And some of that we're going to actually look at next week. And what we're going to do next week is take the same verses and answer different questions. David gives, and his people give, because one, they know God's more powerful. Secondly, Christians give. And what we see David saying is because they know God more generous than they are. David's saying, God, I wouldn't have had any of this stuff in this world for you anymore. Who am I? And that's like someone who comes to, hot topic, let's not go much past this tonight, but somebody who comes to the United States in a, in a status that's not legal, decides to stay and live here, they don't come and get all the benefits and rights of citizenship. They don't have uh, the ability to make some decisions and do certain things. They usually don't come as wealthy people. Usually. A person in that kind of status, if they're going to be wealthy, if they're going to be able to give in a way that David's watching people give, that person's going to have to receive that from someone else. And, but that's, that's how we do it. That's 
how you are. Life is temporary. You all know it. You've experienced it. You've watched family members, you've watched friends uh, come into this world, and they either live a long life, and at the end they've died, or they've died way too soon. You know the temporary nature of life. But God is generous. Much more generous than we are. Because left to ourselves, we want to amass wealth. We want to amass possessions. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to a young man, Timothy, who's going into the ministry, hey, Timothy, as you're teaching these people, be careful. He says this in first verse. He says, be careful and teach them this, and you watch out for this. Beware of the love of money. Not beware of money. You have the love of money. The pursuit of it. The, the desire to to amass it for the sake of power, for the sake of influencing things the way you want to do. Timothy, be careful because money has an influence over people. It doesn't matter who you are. Money is power. The desire to be wealthy. We, we left ourselves, we would spend our whole lives pursuing that to its own end. Just so I can amass all this wealth and then Maybe I can lose this my kids, grandkids, but they're going to die. Life is temporary. Money, possessions, wealth, that's all temporary. Those are things that operate and function only here in this world. David got that. He understood that as powerful as he was, in the position that he was, it all stays here. It can't be brought with you. Christians give because we know God's more powerful. And Christians give because we know that God's more generous than we are. Again, the Apostle Paul, uh, he picks this up and he takes it into the New Testament. So as the Apostle Paul is talking to a church in the New Testament and he's about to visit them, uh, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's going to visit them and along the way he says, hey, look, I'm going to be going to this church later. They need some help. Famine took the land. And so I want you to have your offering ready. I want you to have the money that you're prepared to give to them ready. And as he's kind of talking to them about why they should give, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He reminds them of God's generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's go to that next slide there. For you know, talking to people in the church, talking to people who are Christians, who are believers in Christ, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, so that you, by his poverty, could become rich. He's explaining to them the gospel. He's saying to the Christians, Christians, you know God's more powerful than you. Christians, you know God's more generous than you because you know that Jesus, who is God, right? He would say this in another another one of his letters as he wrote from, from prison. He would say Jesus was in the very position with God. He was sitting up there. He was in fellowship. He was communing. He was talking. He was having coffee with God because he is. That coffee cup money. And then he lowered himself. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Jesus lowered himself. Even though he was God, he did not consider that, that authority that he had, that powerful position that he had, he didn't consider that something he needed to hold on to. He could have. He'd be completely justified 
completely right to hold on to it. God could have had a different plan where he just says, you know what? Done. Saved. Fixed. Instead, between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, the three decided, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to demonstrate our love to the very people we've created who have instead chose to love themselves more than us. Jesus is going to step down and become like one of them. He's God. All wealth, all power, all authority. There's no one above him. There's nothing he doesn't own, can't possess, can't even create. You know? He's got it all. He's going to become poor. He instead is going to take on limitations. He's going to take on a body when he previously didn't have a body. He's going to, he's going to now feel the things that only mere humans feel. Tiredness. Hunger. Thirst. He's going to, he's going to learn what it feels like when a friend dies. His feet are going to hurt after he's walked for so many miles to the next town. He's going to get blisters. All that stuff that mere humans do compared to God. Jesus becomes poor. Although he was rich, he became poor. He's not doing it just for the fun. Because none of God's more generous than we are. That might be our motivation. Our motivation might be to to help someone or put ourselves in a position and, and find some way where it benefits us. This does not benefit God. This is benefiting us. Christ made himself poor, even though he's rich, poor your sake. Speaking of people who have placed their trust in Christ, he said, Jesus did that for you, for your sake. To you this morning, I tell you, if, if you place your trust in Christ, Jesus made himself poor for you. If you have not placed your trust in Christ for him, I want you to hear this, that this is what one of, the, one of the, the great mysteries, yet the great event that takes place in Christianity is that God, the great creator of all, enters into his very creation. But he doesn't do it like a king. He doesn't do it with all power and all authority like you and I would expect. It's like he does it with great weakness and humility. He becomes like so that he can sympathize with us. Jesus became poor for your sake. So that, by his poverty, his poorness, we could become rich. Do you see it? You've been made rich if you place your trust in him. And you've done that because Jesus became poor. So, where do we get room to boast in anything we have. Because all that we have comes from God. Now, clearly rich here, maybe I shouldn't say clearly because I'm not giving you the context here. Clearly, uh, the context here is not simply just about money. And being rich in Christ is not simply just about possession. Because the Apostle Paul would say in yet another one of his letters, and you have every spiritual blessing in heaven. And he's going to then go through a list. You've been chosen by God. You've been adopted as son. You've got the Holy Spirit now that seals you. He goes through this list. 
You're sitting there and you've always wondered, you know, why do Christians give? There's, there's two reasons for this morning. Christians give because God, we know God's more powerful and we know God's more generous than us. So maybe if you've been one of those people where you're just kind of going through the motions and, and, and you come, you sit, you stand, you sing, sing a few songs, you don't even get some coffee, you play some, you play some books in there. You've never questioned why do you give. To you, I'd say, this morning, my hope for you is that you start to think about why do I give? Because reality is, if we're just throwing money into the play, but we have no clue why we're doing that, why, why would you do that? I mean, lots of people want money from us. You don't do that for other people, right? I mean, unless you just feel guilty, right? Lots of people want money. Lots of people need money. But why do Christians do it? Do you believe God is more powerful? Do you believe He's more powerful? You start to understand that, that will start to change the way you view money. I almost said your money, but that would be kind of self-defeating money. Money. I know some of you sitting here this morning going, yeah, but I don't have money. I'm not wealthy. There may be some other people here. They, that's easy for them to hear. They can get easy. No, Jesus never discriminated. There's one point where he's looking at a widow who had nothing, and he says, look at her. She just gave everything she had. That was money for rent. And that's the type of person that Jesus brings. So Jesus doesn't discriminate between how much money you have or how little you have. Instead, he's looking at why you give it. How are you giving it? Which is what we're looking at. Money is one of those things that it's hard for us to get our hands on. And it's hard for us when we do get our hands on it to control it and to do what we want. And so maybe you're thinking, well, I give. Or I, I feel better about my money if I can manage it better. You've noticed that over the, the, the last few weeks we've been advertising a class that we're going to offer studying this uh, uh, financial piece of uh, the, the goal of this class, one, what we're not doing here, we're not offering this class because we're hoping that you're going to now start getting more to the church. Because, you know, that's not, that's not it. I've stood up here before you uh, week in and week out, and I've said to you, if you're a guest and that plate passes, don't feel like you've got to put anything in there. Now, me, if you're a guest, we don't want your money. We don't need your money. That's not why we're here. This, when we pass a plate, that's part of our worship. 
That is part of us responding to God because of what He has first done to us. Why on earth would I want to change that and manipulate that just to get our lights paid? That's, that's so small. So that class, we're not offering it because we're hoping that, hey, you know what, you're going to start giving more. If that's the byproduct and it's healthy, and that's because you're starting to understand, hey, God is the one blessing me. That's what we want. Because that's yet another area of your life that has now been submitted to the Lord. We've been talking about discipleship the whole time we've been talking about more. How do we follow Christ? How does it look to be one who follows Christ? That's what we want for all of us, is that areas of our life are being submitted to the Lord. And that nothing in our lives can be told like this. So, Father, um, I pray that you'd go behind me now and, and let your spirit work. Money is one of those areas, God, where we are very easily controlled and manipulated. Uh, money is one of those areas that, that strikes a chord with us. It's passionate, has emotions attached to it. And yet, God, none of that is a surprise to you because money is simply something that you create so that we can operate down here. If it wasn't paper, dollar bills, and coins, we'd figure out something that has value. God, to you, that's nothing. To you, it's all of them, not really nice. God, because all things are yours. All things come from you. Forgive us, God, when we elevate ourselves or we elevate another person as being more powerful than you because of their authority, because of their position, because of their wealth. Because in doing that, God, we're failing to acknowledge that there is no one above you, there's no one God like you. There's no God like you are the only God. And from you come all good things. Every perfect thing. God, the possessions that we have, we have simply because you've allowed us to have them. And God, so forgive us then when we take those possessions and we worship them instead of you, the giver. Change our hearts. Change our hearts, God, so that we are trusting in you and holding loosely to the things in this world that are temporary. And instead, we seek to hold more tightly to you. That our, our actions and our words and our, and our lifestyles are more influenced by holding tightly to you and being influenced by your love for us. By your character as we are exposed to you. How we need your help as we live through this life. Thank you for the Christ name. Your God is much more powerful than any other person, more powerful than you. And He knows how to give much better than you do. So go and stop holding tightly to the things that He's given you. And as you release your grip, see how tightly He holds you. Do that in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next time.